Exodus chapter, so we're in 19, but if you go back to 16 and sort of set the stage, Israel had complained uh, to Moses uh, because they had no food. And uh, each day the Lord provided uh, quails and manna. And then there in chapter 16 commanded them uh, to rest on the Sabbath. Um, in 17, uh, the Lord had told Moses to strike the rock to provide uh, water for the nation of Israel. And then Amalek. Uh, as a nation, had attacked Israel. And Moses uh, held up his arms during that battle uh, with uh, Aaron and Hur's assistance. And Joshua's army uh, had victory in the process. Uh, then after that, we saw Moses' father-in-law, uh, Jethro, who came and offered sacrifice to the Lord. And there uh, made the suggestion to uh, Moses to appoint uh, leaders to help him uh, judge the people. And when you come to chapter 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. So the wilderness is not, you know, like a, a sandy desert as we might think of it as you know, being Middle Eastern wilderness. It's the idea of uh, grazing pastures or grazing country. So this is an area that's good for flocks, is, uh, you know, the, where they're at. And, uh, you know, it hadn't been settled by man at this point. Um, uh, in particular, what's most significant about this location and this moment in their history, if you think back to Exodus chapter 3, looking at verse 12, it says, So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So this mountain that's about to burn with fire, and they're going to see God deliver uh, his law to them here in this moment, is where that fire began with the burning bush. So Moses now has come full circle, literally, to the location where he first met God. And in that, there's quite a picture uh, for us. You think of the small way the Lord kindles fires in our lives to inspire us and cause us to follow him and even minister uh, before him. And it's not until much later when we've seen the Lord grow that into you know, something like the fiery mountain. You know, something that's, you know, truly magnificent to everyone, not just sort of a, a wonderment to the individual like the burning bush was to Moses. It's going to become a very powerful work, and it's a confirmation uh, to Moses that the call of the Lord in the beginning was real because now they've come back to this place and they're going to have this encounter with the Lord. So in verse 3, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Uh, it's always interesting whenever the Lord chooses, especially by the power of the Holy Spirit, to record in the scripture something that we should pay attention to. He uses the term Jacob. He doesn't call the nation Israel. You know, the two terms, Jacob, we could basically say means to be a scoundrel. That's essentially what his name meant, heel catcher one who comes from behind, grabs the heel of others, causing them to trip. A, a scoundrel, someone who takes advantage uh, 
of people and situations. Uh, once he's come to a place of submission with the Lord, the Lord changes his name to Israel, which means governed by God. So to go from being a scoundrel to being governed by God, I mean, that's the summary of our faith in entirety, the, the change that the Lord affects on our life. Here, you, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, you know, <laughs> the house of scoundrel. Yes, you're talking to my people. Yes, you're talking to Israel. But we need to talk about their character which is going to be very reflective of all the things that are said and following. Tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, uh, there's a lot of commentary and a lot of passages throughout the Scripture that talk about the Lord's dealing with his people as a parent eagle. And um, essentially, the summary is that all of the strength, all of the protection lies within that, particularly the mother bird, you know, the, the parent eagle, not in the child, not in the fledgling. Certainly the offspring <clears throat> have a certain potential and a certain beauty, but it's the Lord who puts himself in the place of being the parent who raises them up. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So uh, this statement on behalf of the Lord is conditional. Uh, one, uh, there is a significant difference between the law and the covenant. If you consider the covenant being the promise that God made, any of us that have studied through know that when this covenant began with Abraham, God said that you're going to have to perform sacrifices. A whole bunch of animals he lists there in Genesis and says you're going to have to cut these in half. You're going to have to lay them out. You'll meet from one side, I'll come in from the other side, and we will offer these sacrifices together. Uh, what occurs is the day wears on. Abraham becomes tired from chasing the vultures away who want all of those dead carcasses. He eventually falls asleep. When he awakens, the Lord is passing through that line of animals that have been laid out for sacrifice, and essentially they are bursting into flame. God is performing the sacrifice. Essentially, Abraham did everything he could, which was fall asleep. And then God performed the fulfillment of the promise. A very one-sided covenant in that God performs all of the work. We receive all of the benefits in the process. So here he makes the reference to the covenant. And often, as you read the commentators, they confuse the reference to the covenant as being a reference to the law. The law is not the covenant that God has with his people. You can summarize God's covenant with grace. That's Old Testament, New Testament, the summary of his relationship with humanity. His grace, which covers us. So, you know, you consider the priesthood that he just mentioned. A couple of references to us as the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are that kingdom of priests, especially the New Testament believers, especially those of us that worship in spirit and in truth. We are the official representatives of his kingdom. He says it again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. He made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, listen, believers. This is why we put such high standard on the conduct of Christians. Because we are descendants of God himself. Literally sons and daughters of God. We are ambassadors, emissaries, representing our Father and our King, the kingdom that we're calling people into. You get this impression from certain teachings and certain people that there's sort of a hierarchy within you know, Christianity, within the kingdom, and the rest of us, the rest of us are just sort of, you know, peasantly. Yeah, you know, you got the, 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 the priests, you got the, the kings, the princes, and the rest of us are all just citizens. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, you're a child of the king. You are a priest and you are a king. You represent God. And all that applies to priests and kings throughout the scripture applies to us, particularly morally. Especially as we begin to examine the Ten Commandments here. 19 verse 7, so Moses came, called the elders of the people, newly appointed, right? Jethro just left and said, you need to appoint elders. <laughs> and they do. And now here they are, as Moses calls the elders of the people laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded them. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You can almost hear the ominous music right there. <laughs> are they going to do it? The answer is no. Why? Because they can't. And we'll discuss that as we move on. God does fulfill all of these things regardless of the weakness of his people. No excuse for us. I'm not giving out passes this morning as a pastor, but it is his grace. Old Testament and New Testament, we are saved by grace. Then all the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. I'm going to give you this confirmation as far as your authority goes, Moses, in that the people are going to hear me speak so that when you speak on my behalf, they'll know that these are in agreement. Uh, there's a lesson for us as believers. Anyone that we're taught by, anyone that we follow, we want to make sure that their words line up with God's words. We don't ever want to get to the place where someone is teaching us and we're looking at the word of God and thinking, that doesn't line up at all. If that be the case, seriously consider where you are. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Set them aside in a very particular way for dedication. Uh, consecration means just that. You belong to one particular thing, right? I think my wife's uh, butter knives are screwdrivers, a Karen, you know, sometimes. 
Apparently, they're not. They are consecrated for butter and things of that nature. I use them for all the wrong things. We are consecrated to God. Here, these people are being consecrated to God. Whatever you were doing that may not have been aligned with the Lord, cut that out. And align yourself, even to the point of wash your clothes. Come before the Lord clean so that you don't have the filth of the world on you. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. On the third day. On the third day here, he's going to come down, right? In our belief system, New Testament Christians, on the third day, he came up. In the same way, it was to meet his people. To come down from heaven here to deliver the law. To come up from the grave to greet us in victory. So, on the third day, let them be ready. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Set bounds. There have to be boundaries. Uh, parents, there's a mentality in the world that children are born essentially good and that it's the world that corrupts them. Um, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, I'm sure, and I don't say this entirely mocking, but I'm sure your children are angelic. My grandkids are. You know? Just, you know, that you, you can be blind by love. But the worst of sins is bound up in a newborn infant's heart. You know, I, I have, I like the illustration, so I use it all the time. I, I have witnessed as a young pastor when I was first starting here almost 18 years ago, uh, murder in the heart of a toddler. You know, in the nursery, wrestling over a ball, I step in the door just in time to see a child rip the ball out of the hands and turn around. And I saw a child who just lost the ball lose their mind, just heart filled with rage, turned around and grabbed the full metal Tonka truck right up off the floor. Child in front of them sitting on the floor raises this thing up and comes down with all the murder in the world and her little heart. And I just grabbed the Tonka truck. And she literally came right through and struck the other child on the shoulders and like was amazed. No Tonka truck in her hands. And, you know, then I threw away all of the metal Tonka trucks. <laughs> <clears throat> Stick with the Nerf objects from now on. The, the rage on that child. I mean, I've seen temper tantrums, but that child didn't it just stave this child's head in and don't care about the outcome other than I need the ball. Coveting, right? Murder, hatred, anger. It's in our hearts. Yes, the world can cause certain children to exaggerate certain elements of that. Genetics, nature, nurture, what is it? It's sin. And it's bound up in our hearts from the beginning. We need Christ to deliver us. We have to set bounds. We've got to set boundaries. 
I hear all the time from parents, and I'm quick to correct them because they'll say things, it's, he's just a kid. It's only natural. Right. Both things are absolutely true. They're just a child, and it's only natural. The point I'm trying to drive across right now is murder is natural. Lust, anger, hatred, covetousness, this is all by nature. It comes to us as human beings naturally. You don't have to train anybody in these things. You ever seen a kid lie? Not only, like when they're really, not only to provide deception, but then also misdirection. They'll lie. I did not take this cookie. This one. I have. Didn't take it. Didn't steal it. <clears throat> All of this chocolate on my face does not pertain to that which I've eaten before. All of this is someone else's fault. They enticed me. They led me. In fact, I got this for them. Misdirection. This isn't a simple lie of them sort of not knowing that they're deceiving. Their deception is so complete that they understand our legal system. All they've got to do is provide you with reasonable doubt. This is because of someone else. It's not me. Liars. Sinful. Corrupt. Boundaries. Parents. Boundaries. Do not have the attitude of, oh, they're just a kid. And, uh, I mean, it's only natural. Yeah, right. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction drives it far from them. Now, listen. The rod of correction isn't beating at all. The rod that the shepherd held in his hand, if the sheep was prone to wandering, he would just reach out with that and go, tap. No beating. You don't have to flog the sheep to death. Just touch him with it and remind him, this is here. It can be used to inflict pain. But right now, you're headed into something you shouldn't be involved in. So I will take the rod and correct you to steer you where you need to go. Foolishness that's bound up in the heart of the child? Oh, they are silly. No, 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 no. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of the child. If you're thinking them, oh, they're so sweet. No, 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 no. Godlessness. By birth. Is bound into the heart of a child. And the rod of correction is going to drive it far from them. Not close to them. Not just outside them. Far away from them. Oh, think about how much our culture has failed at this. Listening to the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God and following after their own teachings. And now children are basically good. And let's just fill our prisons with them. They need correction even to this day. You start correcting them even in prison. Heinous criminal. And then all the sinful politicians rise up and insist we shouldn't correct anyone. Because if we can correct them, then that means they themselves have to be corrected. If we approve of one another's sin, then surely we're okay in our sin, right? This is the attitude of the world. Boundaries need to be set. 
individually, for yourself, for your children, in our culture. This is the healthiest thing we can have. It isn't about, oh, there's beautiful stuff over here. That if you got to experience it, your life would be filled with such fulfillment and joy that I want to keep you from it. That's, that's the mindset, our sinful mindset, is God is keeping me from something. That's our sinful mindset when along comes an individual that says, this is the rule and you can't go beyond this. Our sin says, no, I want the thing on the other side. The boundary God has set is for our benefit. It's to keep us from the things that would harm us, hurt us, destroy us. Setting the bounds. You shall set the bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether a man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds along, they shall come near the mountain. Now, something about even their execution. If, if they're dumb enough, once this whole thing begins, to go and touch the mountain for whatever reason, they're curious, they're interested, they're, they're holy and want to be more holy. There's the presence of God. I want to go disobey God and get closer to him by doing it. Strange things that go through the heart of people. If you think I'm just throwing out examples, I can list for you a lot of specifics where people are facing a choice to go participate in something that God has clearly forbidden in his scripture, and in their mind they've developed the attitude that, no, I'm so spiritual that by disobeying God's word, I'm actually going to be closer to him in my disobedience. Right? Eve was told, eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and in doing so, you will be like God. She walked with God every day in the cool of the evening. Nothing was more spectacular an experience than that moment every day. And now she's being told, you're going to be like the God who overwhelms you with blessing every single day. Wow, why not? I don't mean to touch anybody's golden calf or upset anybody, but the single place I commonly run into this more than any other is with dear women who love the Lord and want to serve Him and disobey God's Word and go become pastors. What a strange paradox. I don't doubt that they love the Lord. I don't doubt that they want to serve the Lord. But the Scripture has clearly defined that men are supposed to be the leaders of the home and the church. You can't get any closer to God by disobeying God. It never happens. Consider, obedience, obedience is more important than their feelings. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people, sanctified the people. They washed their clothes. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Literal sexual intimacy, even in something that is allowed and understood. God said, I want you to abstain from this in order to get closer to me. There are even certain things in our life that are ordained by God that at times God says, put that away for right now in order to get closer to me. No, go home and shut the television off. The internet. Things that 
in and of themselves are not evil. You can find evil there. You can do evil there. But there are certain things you can remove from your life in order to grow closer to the Lord. Food. Fasting from food. Just 24 hours. Things that you can neglect. Sexual intimacy with your spouse in order to grow closer to the Lord. If we can't even demonstrate that type of self-control, then what it does is show us how weak we really are. Interesting what the Lord wants from us. He wanted the people to demonstrate their desire for purity by putting on clean clothing, restraining their desires, even legitimate desires. Verse 16, it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. There are a few things I'm going to try to unfold as we move forward, a few minutes that we have remaining. A quick summary is this. This is the first time that the trumpet of God has been sounded. And what it does is call all of his people together to himself, and they are then given the law. The next time we see the trumpet blown in the scripture, the trumpet of God, it gathers all of his people together to himself again. Here at Mount Sinai, there in his presence in heaven. We'll examine a little more as we move on. The trumpet is sounding. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. When the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. We're going to see that they heard that. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So this sounding of the trumpet of God. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, we read this countless times. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The trumpet of God gathers his people together. Now if you're a student of the scripture and you're thinking, no, there are seven trumpets in the book of Revelation will. And you know, you've got all kinds of different things in your thinking process. I'll just point out that there are vials, bowls, and trumpets, and those are all of angels. There's one trumpet of God. And as far as we can tell in the scripture, it's blown twice. Once right here, where it gathers his people together, as I said, to receive the law. The second time it's blown, it's to gather his people together in his presence. So there is the call. It's also shadowed again. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. That's what we're all waiting for, right? 
the door to be opened to heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after this. Now, you can talk to me later. I'll just put a couple little hints in here. It starts out in verse four there, or chapter four, verse one of Revelation, saying, "After these things, the word is metatauta." Right. So, if you rewind back to when John is writing the letters to the churches, the Lord says to him, chapter one, Revelation chapter one, verse nineteen. The Lord says to him, "I want you to write down the things." that you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place metatauta after this. He then starts writing the letters to the churches. Seven letters to the churches take place, and then you come to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So the churches are addressed, and then it says, after this. After what? The churches. A simple explanation, as best I can understand it, is there are seven ages to the churches that take place, and the Lord writes seven letters to them, and we are in the last age of the church. And when will the church age end? When the trumpet sounds, and the voice calls us, and the door in heaven is open, and we are gathered into his presence. Revelation 4.1, read it again with that light. After these things, what things? The church, I looked and behold, a door standing in a hope, open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like the trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. I will show you the things which must take place after this. After what? The church. Go into Revelation this afternoon. Go right to chapter 4. Read that verse and then start reading everything that follows after that of the tribulation that falls upon this planet, God's great wrath that comes to a God-rejecting world, all that unfolds in the book of Revelation. It all happens after this. The church and God calling his people into his presence. So I've dwelt on that long enough. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord. That would probably be the most interesting element of trying to get there and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. There's no chance of that. The Lord is telling Moses, There is a chance of that. These people are silly. They'll go right over the bounds just to catch a glimpse of me. You have to protect them. In this situation, then the Lord said to Moses, uh, or excuse me, the Lord said to, to him, away, go down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. So uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Put your bookmark there, if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 12. Drop right down to verse 18. God's law actually keeps us away from him. In that we're imperfect. And he says, you want to meet me? You got to meet perfection. 
So in that end, what the law does is expose to us the impossibility of us getting to God. If you're thinking, I don't know if I agree with all that. Here's the summary, you guys. Every other religion of the world is telling its followers, we have created a way for you to get to God. You got to meditate enough. You got to be perfect enough. You got to empty yourself of worldly things enough. You got to do all this stuff. And when you do, you'll be so holy that you will become God or be acceptable to God or become part of God. Access to God is accomplished by the human race through their process, becoming acceptable to God. That's the difference with Christianity. Christianity says humanity is never acceptable to God. They're sinful. They're corrupt. The only way that I can make them acceptable is by my grace. Forgiveness is how that is accomplished. His grace draws us close. His law keeps us at a distance. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. Right? We haven't come to Sinai. We've come to Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, Abel performing his sheep sacrifice to the Lord. You're there in Hebrews? Go to the left to chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I'll just quickly say, that for Jesus that occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tempted in all the same ways we are, Jesus said, I do not want to experience this crucifixion. I'm paraphrasing. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. The moment in eternity where Jesus' will for the first time was different than God's will. I'm going to choose to do God's will rather than my own. So he was... In all points tested, yet without sin. Let us therefore, here's what I wanted us to see, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have to be afraid of the presence of God or approaching him. There's no fear in our process. Acceptance, grace, love is what the Lord has for you. In your time of prayer and, and as you develop your relationship and your time of devotions each day to the Lord, you should not think of him as some fearful thing. 
loving, accepting, gracious Father who's opened all of the barriers to his throne and invited humanity to himself boldly before his throne. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. Well, there, just close the book. We'll end with that. The law that comes right here, the Ten Commandments which follow, this is not the opinions of any man. This is not a group of people that sat down and said, you know, we really, we got to codify this law. Should we allow people to murder or not? Everybody in favor of murder, you know, okay, those opposed, okay, so thou shalt not murder. This isn't how this goes down. This is God speaking to humanity. I'm making the point because, because there are people who are opposed to the word of God who insist, oh, Ten Commandments, God's law, that's nothing new. You know, Hamanatra did that. You know, you got an Egyptian king who developed a codified law. And much of what's contained inside this law of Moses, because they want to imply it's Moses' law. You know, you got Hamanatra's law, you got Moses' law, you got other laws that have been codified throughout history. They want to imply this isn't like some deity. This isn't God telling us this is the way things are. This is just man's opinion, and so we should be able to bend and break and change any of these rules that we want to. Here's the thing. God wrote these laws before the beginning of time. They are written on our hearts. Okay? It is wrong to murder. And and everyone who does it can be, oh, well, what about the man in the deepest jungle who's never heard and doesn't know? Oh, he knows. No, he knows it's wrong to murder without question. You know how he knows it's wrong? He doesn't want to be murdered himself. God's law is written on his heart, telling him, I don't want to experience this, so therefore you should not cause others to experience it. This is, this is literally the law of nature, the law of God. God is the God of nature. He created nature. He's the God of science. These ca- things can be examined scientifically. The God who created all science created these laws. This is not some human endeavor. When I say, when I read, and God spoke all these words, you know, like end of story. You can put that on the front of your Bible. God spoke all these words. Genesis to Revelation. We need to live by them. So, i got to hurry. i got three hours here, so we got to just cruise right through them. A few minutes. God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm I'm the one who gave you this freedom. There are no other gods, so you can't have any other gods, is what he's saying. He goes on at length about that. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven, or that is in the earth, or that is in the water under the earth. If you draw pictures of Jesus uh, really well, please continue to do that. If you carve... Um, you know, carvings of Jesus. Uh, please continue to do that. 
This is not a forbidding of artistry or carving or images. Right? You're going to get into the law later where God is saying, I want you to make images in my temple. I need you to make images of angels. I need you to make images on the walls. I need you to put images on the ark. They need to stand. Statues need to stand inside. The punchline of this commandment is in the next statement. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Pictures, images, carved you know, things, statues, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the prayers offered to them that make this wrong. Idolatry. You got to stay away from that. Worship of God was to be word based, not image based. Deuteronomy chapter 4 12 says, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Worship of God is word based, not image based. John 4. Verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Not praying to an idol, not praying to a statue. For I, verse 5, the Lord your God am a jealous God. Oh, people get upset about that. Jealous. Oh, jealousy is sinful. Well, let's just be clear. Jealousy is not sinful, right? I mean, if... You know, any woman had another woman hitting on her husband. Her heart would be filled with jealous rage. That is actually a godly reaction. She's jealous for the relationship. Now, if you've got a really nice watch and I'm jealous and want it, it's not actually the jealousy that's as wrong as much as the covetousness. So what we assign in our culture as being jealous isn't so much jealousy, it's covetousness. Okay, You could more accurately insert the word zealous right there. right? For I, the Lord your God, am a zealous God. He loves us. He desires us. Refers to us as his bride. Says that the Spirit yearns for us jealously. The, the Holy Spirit wants us in relationship with him. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generations. Now listen, if you've come from a church that teaches what's called generational cursing, I don't have time to be concerned about your feelings. I'll just tell you that's wrong. Okay? <clears throat> if dad was a drunk, that doesn't mean you're automatically going to be a drunk. You can choose to not be drunk. The curse of your father isn't going to be visited upon you. Again, read it here. You know, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the fourth and uh, third and fourth generations of those who hate me. It's not like you've got somebody that's incredibly sinful and his children, when they're born, they just love the Lord. And God goes, well, that stinks because I've got to finish, you know, finish that your father's curse is upon you. I know you love me and everything, but I'm going to pour my curses out upon you. That's not how God works. Generational curses, as it is clearly defined here, is what you're doing, parents, is going to affect your children. That's what he's saying right here. You're not going to escape. It's the same thing he's saying in the New Testament about God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. 
Are you a selfish, self-indulgent, neglectful father to your wife and family? Guaranteed, that's exactly what your kid's going to be. Selfish, self-centered, sinful, neglectful. That's what your kid's going to be. You're training within them. If you abandon that sinful behavior, pursue the Lord, that goes away in your life and the result of it. If your child does, same thing there. Many of us have the unfortunate experience of seeing how our sin has affected our children. Many of us have the wonderful experience of seeing how our sin, by the grace of God, has not affected our children. His removal of those things. Showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me. I underlined that, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, yeah, it's cursing. It's taking Jesus' name as a swear word and using it and blurting it out. Yeah, it's those things. It's also assigning to yourself God's name in an empty way. I'm a follower of Jesus, and then people look on and think, no. Not at all can see through your my behavior that we're not, in fact, followers of Jesus. We've assigned his name to ourselves, but we've done it in an empty way. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, he says, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servants, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, I can't tell you all of the locations throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, where even Jesus himself is telling us that we don't have to observe the Sabbath day in the way it's been presented by religion. You know, Jesus gets into a lot of conflict with the religious leaders over the fact that he doesn't honor the Sabbath the way that they say he needs to. He makes a statement of how he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in that, he gives this summary in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 where he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed so you can rest, right? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, the scripture makes it clear that under the new covenant, no one's under an obligation to observe the Sabbath day. It's not an obligation anymore for us. The new covenant, the new testament, we're not required we should rest, according to the scripture, according to Jesus, once a week. What day is that for you? Right? Is that Wednesday? You take Wednesday off and you rest and you go to Wednesday night service or Thursday night service. You worship the Lord. A day that you take off in order to rest and recuperate and worship. That's what we're supposed to be doing. What day is that? Does it change for you each week based upon your schedule? Know this, you should have a day where your body can shut off and rest and you can worship the Lord. But you're not under some legal obligation to make sure that it's Saturday. 
20 verse 12, uh, and I should have said, the reason we moved to Sunday as the New Testament Gentile church is because Jesus rose on Sunday. And the church, especially the Gentile church, immediately started worshiping the Lord on Sunday, the first day of the week. The, the new creation. There are a number of things there to consider. If that troubles you, please come and talk to me and we'll let the scripture sort it out. 20 verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother. Uh, new Testament telling us you know, that we should obey our parents and honor them in the Lord. Uh, I, I've said many times, we are only required to honor our parents and obey our parents as much as they uh, honor the Lord with their life. If, if we have parents that are godless and ungodly, then we are to respect them and to honor them, but only to the degree that they are honoring the Lord. You know, if, if they are creating arguments and bad-mouthing us and our faith and stirring up problems, it's okay for you to walk away. That's, that's probably the best way you can honor them, right? Because if you stay there, what's going to happen? You're going to fight with them. You're going to argue with them. You're going to damage the relationship. Obeying them. I've seen parents, sinful parents, insist that their children needed to obey them in their disobedience to God. This is how our family is. This is what you're going to do. You know, I've, I've run into situations where young teenagers have surrendered their life to Christ, started coming to church, and now their parents are forbidding them to come to church. To which I tell them, it's now time to disobey your parents. you got to follow the Lord with your life. If the, if the parents are telling you, disobey God, then you have to make up your own mind about that. Honor your father and your mother, for your days may be long upon the land. Now, I've, it's falsely been taught, oh, you'll, you'll have a long lifespan if you obey your parents. Not necessarily, right? I have no idea where the finish line is for each individual person. Everyone dies, right? So be that when you're younger or when you're older, that's not what this is promising. What this is promising is there was a group of people in this land known as the Canaanites. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt into the land. We're going to drive the Canaanites out. If you will obey your parents, I'll let you live in the land for a long time. You disobey your parents, I'm going to do what I told you all along. I'm going to drive you out of the land. Because the land is mine, is what God is saying. Now apply that to your own life. right? God is going to bless you. God is going to cause you to prosper in whatever way he does that. It might not even be monetarily, but he's going to bless you and cause you to prosper as long as you obey him and obey your parents. If you're rebellious toward him and your parents, things are going to get cut short. The blessing of the Lord is going to be removed. These people get driven out of the land, right? 490 years later, God says, that's it. You're not obeying me. You're not obeying your parents. You're not taking the Sabbath as I told you to, so we'll send you away and let the land have its rest for 70 years. Literally removing them from the land. They don't get to live there a long time. He says in 13, you shall not murder. Now, listen, there's a whole big problem in our culture. Oh, no, murder. And, uh, you know, is it right? We're going to now murder the man who murdered? Now we're as guilty as he is. Uh, that's not what the scripture records at all. Murder is not manslaughter, nor is it capital punishment. Okay? 
Murder is when you decide you're going to go kill somebody, make a plan, and then go carry it out. That's murder. You're minding your own business, somebody attacks you, you get in a big fight, he ends up dead. That's called manslaughter. God doesn't classify that as murder at all. It's the premeditation. Whether, whether that person premeditated for a couple seconds or a couple years. If you planned and then carried it out, that's murder. That's first degree murder. God specifically says anyone who murders needs to be put to death in order to protect the culture. Every single culture that has capital crime for murder, their murder rate's incredibly low. Every single culture around the world that has capital punishment in place, you murder somebody, we're going to put you to death. Incredibly low murder rates. Right? America, right now, 92,000 murders three years ago. That's the FBI statistics. That's, that's a murder in America every two and a half minutes. We are a murderous nation. You re, every, every single state that they reinstitute capital punishment and they put these people to death, even in the states, their murder rates plummet. When they, when they catch killers, they will make the confession sometimes that I was going across state lines to murder because I don't want this state's capital punishment. God's punishment is even beneficial to us, you guys. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You can't take somebody else's wife. These are things that are laid down in the hearts, minds, lives of every man and woman in the world. The term adultery is a three-part compound word that means to take another person's bed. You're a thief. Some of us have been. We also know the grace of God, his forgiveness, and his love for us. Whatever of these things we may have participated in. You shall not steal. Very simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. Well, we need to. Be content with the things that the Lord has given us and not covet others' things to take them. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You think, well, some of these are just like really small things. Think about this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We could say that's the only commandment that was broken that cost Jesus his life. Jesus was wrongly crucified because someone broke this commandment as they stood and made false accusations against him. Powerful things. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, or his boat, or his motorcycle, or his truck, or anything that is your neighbor's. You're not supposed to even... Desire it. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Covetousness will wreck your heart. 
this law that is being given to us, you're going to find your own failures, right? Paul said he kept the law perfectly until he examined covetousness. <laughs> and then he recognized that within his own heart was all of the great wickedness described by the law. That in the one failure, he could see all of the failures. So this law, in its summary, convicts every single one of us. Makes us godless, causes us to be separate from God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law compels us towards God, shows us our failure, and makes our need very apparent. Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher was said to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Honestly, we can't get past commandment number one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Okay, who in this room is doing that? Stupid to suggest that we are loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Doesn't matter to what degree you're doing it, you can always do it more. You know, you could quit your job and just serve God and trust Him for all things. I mean, how far do you want to go with this? Loving the Lord your God, in that, right, you have to recognize I'm being accepted by God's grace. Because I don't love him with all of my heart, soul, and mind. We are constantly being accepted by God's grace. No other way. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 say, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for us. If we trust him for that, then his completion of the law is imparted to us. We're walking in his spirit and trusting him for it. A little bit more, look at verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled, stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us. We'll hear you. Let not God speak with us, lest we die. You know, some people imply that his voice and his presence were so ominous that they were scared to death. Possible, maybe even probable. There's another thought within this. The people just heard the law, and all of them realized we're lawbreakers. Every one of us is a lawbreaker. If nothing else, I want my neighbor's belongings. I covet what does not belong to me. Now they suddenly recognize we need a mediator. You speak to God and you come back. and talk. We can relate to you. We can't relate to God. His perfection makes it impossible for us to be connected to him. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. God has come to test you. 
God isn't wondering, right? We've talked about this many times. God isn't up there going, I wonder what they're really like. No, God's looking down and seeing they all think we're pretty good. God says, okay, well, let's test you. Delivers the law. And they go, okay, stay away from us. We're sinners. The law has just confirmed. They were tested by the law, and it was confirmed they're separated from God. 1 John chapter 4, to correct all of our understanding in regard to this, beginning at verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. That, that fear that we're called to have compels us towards God. In coming to know God, we know his love. In knowing his love, the fear dissipates. He is our Father. He is our love. 22, 20 verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to the altar that your nakedness may be exposed on it. Now, there's something I want to look at, but just sort of housekeeping as far as going up on steps and their nakedness being revealed. Uh, later steps were added to the altar. And then also leggings were added to the priestly garments so that when they went up on the steps to offer their sacrifice, their, their flesh was not seen. Uh, the imagery that God is putting in here, don't make an ornate altar. Don't carve the stones. Don't let me see your flesh. The idea is this whole work needs to be me. I don't want any of it to be you. I want you to worship me, but at no point do I want people to come to the place of worship and just admire everything you and I have done. It needs to be that the admiration would be entirely God's. That's what he's saying. Do nothing that detracts from who I am. 1 Corinthians to close, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, my speech and my preaching were not worth with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We want to be very careful, especially in regard to wisdom. There's a, a problem within the church where people honor the intellect too much. Okay? Don't get me wrong, right? We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. This is a religion, is a faith of the mind. We are called to reason these things out. But as far as what convinces us, that's a work of the Spirit. And it needs to be from beginning to end. Not some ornate thing. 
not some highly polished, worked out work of man. When we come before the Lord, it needs to be in simplicity. It needs to be in childlike faith, in spirit, and in truth. Make sense for now? Exodus 21 next week, so why don't we stand and we'll pray. I know I've uh, that was like breakneck speed, so uh, a lot of details there. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, you know, by all means, uh, come talk to me, and we'll study it more together and let the Lord teach us. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for our time together. I pray that we would continue to digest these things. Lord, that we would take them in and make them part of ourselves. Help us to live in obedience to you. Help us to follow your wishes and your will for our lives. Help us to be your ministers, to share these things with the world around us, our neighbors, our friends, family, co-workers, fellow students, wherever you give us opportunity, Lord. Open our mouths. Put your wisdom in our hearts that we would share with people and draw them to yourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.